All right, well, this morning we're still in the book of Romans. Anybody remember last week? Last week we talked about Paul and the occasion of his writing. Anybody remember where he was when he wrote the book of Romans? Huh? Huh? Corinth. He was in Corinth, and he was planning to go where? Immediately, he was going to go where? Espana. Espana? Ultimately, yes. He was going to make a pit stop somewhere else, though. Where was he going to go before that? Israel. Israel. Why was he going back to Israel? He was taking an offering back to the church. That's right. They were collecting an offering because there was a famine in the land, and Paul was going to Gentile churches collecting this offering, and he was going to bring it back to Jerusalem, but he got delayed. Why couldn't Paul get to Jerusalem? Something happened that kept him from going to Jerusalem. Something happened and then the time right wasn't right. The time of the year was bad. It was January, February, so he couldn't go on the med. Remember I showed you the picture of the storm in the med? So he couldn't go by sea, but he had to get out of Corinth. Why did he need to get out of Corinth? They tried to kill him. So he said, it's time to go, and he went back up to Macedonia. Okay, and then he took the long way around, and he gets down to Jerusalem, and he ends up getting arrested in Jerusalem, and that's at the end of which missionary journey? Third, okay, yeah, his third missionary journey. Today, we're going to talk about the purpose for his writing. Uh, actually, we're going to talk about interpretive challenges, and the first interpretive challenge is going to be the purpose of his writing. Um, you'll remember on your handout from last week, I had a purpose statement on there. Um, there's a whole bunch of major themes on here. We're not going to take the time for me to walk you through those themes. I, you guys can go and look at them when you would like. Um, but we're going to talk about interpretive challenges, and the big one right now, the first one is, what is Paul's purpose in writing the book of Romans? I gave you a purpose statement on your, your handout. That'll work. But you need to understand, if you're going to read commentaries on Romans, this is a topic of debate. There's actually seven or eight different interpretive challenges. Um, this is the book of Romans. You don't squeeze seven or eight of them into a class. But we don't have time to cover all seven or eight of them either. So we're going to cover three of them today, and these are going to be some of the bigger ones. Okay, so what is Paul's purpose for writing? Why is he writing to the church at Rome? The first view says he's writing for theological reasons. That is to say that Paul is writing to the Romans because he wants to give them a theological treatise. He wants to give them his theological magnum opus and give a full orb theology of the gospel to the Roman church. Uh, one of the places they go for this is Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek I'm going to write to you, I'm going to explain the gospel to you so you can understand it, and I'm going to give you a full theology of the gospel. And this is the traditional understanding of the book of Romans. Paul's writing just to teach theology. And if you listen to most people say, what is the biggest theological book in the Bible? They'll say, the book of Romans. There's a couple of problems with this view, though. If you say this is his purpose for writing... Paul, in Romans 15, if you'll turn back to Romans 15, he tells the Romans that he's not teaching them something they don't already know. He's just reminding them 
He's writing to people who have a good understanding of theology. Romans 15, verse 14, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. To admonish is the word nutheteo. It means to counsel, to give biblical counseling to somebody else. And he says to the Romans, look, you've never had an apostle there. You're a fairly new church, but you are able to counsel one another. You have the knowledge. Verse 15, but I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. I'm not giving you something new. I'm just reminding you of what you already know. Dr. Essex at the Master Seminary said Romans was written to a well-taught audience. And then he started talking about preaching through Romans. And he said, guys, don't try to preach this to your first year in ministry. He goes, that's going to be a huge mistake. This thing is going to stretch you and your congregation. You're not ready in your first year to preach to Romans. This is not... We're not saying that Romans is shallow theology or it has no theology. We're just saying it's not Paul's primary purpose in writing. He certainly brings a lot of theology to the table. But if he was trying to write a full theological treatise, what would we expect him to be doing? We would expect him to cover all the vital areas of the gospel and cover them in depth. You know, like you would expect him not to skip over essentials like the deity of Christ, the person of the Spirit. You would expect that he would have a full laid out idea of the resurrection. And yet, in the book of Romans, he says nothing about the deity of Christ. That's an essential for the gospel. He says very little about some of these other areas. He says very little about the church. He has a couple of scant mentions of the church. He talks about the ordinances, well, never in the book of Romans. He discusses the ordinances of the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians. Doesn't mention it in Romans. And he says nothing about the nature of the church. In Romans 12, 3-8, he gives a short discussion on the gifts given in the church. But that's it. Just a few little verses. When you compare that to 1 Corinthians, he gives three full chapters to the topic. And when you compare it to Ephesians, he gave it almost a full chapter. All of Ephesians 4 discusses the church and the spiritual gifts in the church, and yet in Romans, very little is said about this topic. The resurrection. He mentions the resurrection, Romans 8, verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life, to give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells with you. Very little. He, he mentions the resurrection again in chapter 13, 11 through 14. But again, when you compare his discussion of the resurrection in Romans to 1 Corinthians 15 or 1 Thessalonians 4, he says almost nothing about the resurrection which would be an essential aspect of the gospel. We've already mentioned Christology. Paul does have a very high Christology in Romans. Romans 1, 3 through 4 is a great text to go to for that. But again, if you compare what he says on the person of Christ 
to what he says in Philippians 2? Anybody remember Philippians 2? Anybody remember what he said on Christ there? You guys know the passage. I guess I got some blank stares though. Some I'm sorry? Yes. Um, let me refresh your memory in Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but it emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. There's Paul's theological treatise on Christology. Or in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, where he describes Christ as the sovereign ruler of the universe. Yet in Romans, we get two verses in chapter 1, where he gives a brief explanation of who Christ is, and then he's done. And he's on to a different topic. And if you take these omissions, it seems unlikely that Paul's primary purpose for writing this book was to teach theology, even though that may be a secondary purpose. Thomas Schreiner, it seems unsatisfactory, therefore, to describe Romans as a summary of Paul's theology, since it is not, compre- it is not a comprehensive treatment. There's plenty of theology in Romans, and if you want to learn some theology, it's a good, good place to go. But that was not Paul's primary purpose for writing. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? Okay. So that's the first view. Second view. It's missionary. That is to say that Paul's writing them only so he can get support for his mission to where? To Spain. Yeah. Now, most missionary letters, I don't know if you've read any missionary letters, most missionary letters uh, kind of tend to ignore a lot of theology. They mix a little bit in, but they don't do a whole lot of teaching on theology anywhere. Their letters focus on progress, their plans, their current needs. Yeah. Well, Paul doesn't ignore theology, but he does make it clear that he's writing them to receive their help with his plans to go to Spain. Romans 15 again, if you're still there. Romans 15, verse 23. But now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, I'm coming to you for the purpose of going to Spain, For I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. And some argue that chapter 15, verses 23 and 24 gives us his purpose. That he's writing to them for a missionary purpose. And their argument's really simple. Paul's not going to Rome to make that his home. He's not going to Rome to establish a church. He's not going to Rome to appoint elders in that church. The church has already been established. We assume they already have some elders there. He makes no mention of appointing elders. He makes no mention of the elders, period. But specifically in in that passage, they point to the phrase, be helped on my way. And they point to a specific Greek verb. And that Greek verb is almost always used as a technical term for a, supporting a missionary. Every time it's used in the New Testament. Acts 15, verse 3, Paul and Barnabas, therefore being sent on their way by the church, describing Paul and Barnabas being sent out. It's also used in 2 Corinthians 1, 16, when Paul uh, was in Macedonia the first time on the third missionary journey before he went to Corinth. 
he writes to them and he says, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you in Corinth and by you to be helped on my way to Judea. Same verb used. He was going to Corinth for the purpose of what? Getting to Jerusalem. And that's the verb he uses here in Romans 15. I want to be helped on my way. This term is always a technical term for supporting a missionary. And that would mean Paul's primary purpose in writing to the Romans was that he could go to the Romans and receive aid from them, whether that's material support or prayer, in getting to Spain. And his purpose is to be a missionary there. I skipped this quote from Hebert. He clearly suggests that he expects assistance from his readers in the endeavor to carry the gospel to Spain. So Hebert takes the position that Paul's primary purpose is to be a missionary. All right, next one. Apologetic. What is apologetics? Someone said it? Defending the faith? Okay, yeah. It's to defend the faith. And they argue that Paul's writing to the Romans for the purpose of just defending the faith. Romans chapter 3, verse 8, they point to this verse and they say, look, this is him defending what he's preaching. He's defending the gospel that he preaches. And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. See, there it is. Paul's being an apologist. Paul's defending what he's preaching. Romans 16 is another passage they use to support this. Romans 16, uh, verses 17 through 20. Would somebody like to read that? So I'm not the only one talking today. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions, hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you heard, which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspected. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Thank you. Their argument goes like this. Paul is writing to this church, and he wants them to avoid the same errors that the Galatians and the Corinthian churches had. And they claim that Paul was writing primarily to the Jews who were bringing in works righteousness. Anybody know what that group is called? Judaizers. Judaizers. And they say, well, look, there was Jews in Rome. In Rome, We saw that last week. The Jews were a big part of who he's writing to in this book. And so because he has this apologetic bent in some of these verses, he must be dealing with the Judaizers. And he must be defending the gospel against this works righteousness that slipped into the church at Rome. Now, there is some truth that Paul is dealing with Jewish beliefs. We saw that last week where he's talking about Jews. But there's no evidence in the text that Judaizers were in Rome. Think about what he said in Galatians. If anyone comes to you preaching another gospel other than what we have preached, let him be anathema. 
You get over to Galatians 3 and he says, Oh foolish Galatians who has bewitched you. Do you see any of that language in Romans? Nowhere close. He addresses common Jewish positions, but he never brings any kind of condemnation or says that they have any kind of error. And if Paul was claiming that the Roman Jews were Judaizers, you would think that he would turn around and say, look, you guys need to stop trying to earn righteousness by, obe by being obedient to the law. You would think he would sit there and tell them about how the law cannot bring in righteousness. Is that what he does in Romans? He does the exact opposite. Romans 14. He deals with dietary laws. You know the thing that Judaizers say you have to do in order to be saved? But listen to what he says about the dietary laws and what you are to do with the dietary laws. Verse 1, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard the with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted both. Far from telling them, stop trying to be obedient to the law, stop trying to earn your righteousness, he says, look, if there are people in the church who are obeying the dietary restrictions, allow them to do it. Allow them to follow the dictates of their conscience and don't judge them for it. Romans 14, verses 5 and 6, he deals with the observance of special days like feasts and Sabbath. He says, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. No mention of Judaizers. No mention of don't focus on the law. Instead, he tells them, obey the dictates of your conscience and don't ask someone to violate their conscience to obey the law. In Romans 9 through 11, he doesn't write to them and try to convince them or refute Jewish teaching. You know what he's doing in Romans 9 through 11? He's trying to crush Gentile pride and their arrogance. I didn't write down what verse this is. Oh, Romans, not, uh, Romans 11. Romans 11, starting in verse 17. Would someone be willing to read 17 through 21? Go ahead. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among, among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Thank you. Yeah. So Paul's not here rebuking Jews. He's not going after Judaizers here. Now he's going after Gentiles. So I don't think there's an argument in this book to say that he's writing an apologetic book to defend against Judaism or the Judaizers. 
There is a variation of this view that he's not trying to correct errant theology, but that he's merely trying to keep bad theology from getting into the church. And so in that sense, it's apologetic. Uh, Edmund Hebert, Hebert called it a prophylactic, trying to prevent disease or rot from getting in. And so in that sense, Paul's writing to them to give them good theology so they can avoid bad theology. The problem here is any teaching would fit into that category. What we're doing today fits into that category. We're teaching on this book so we can help you avoid error. And if you're going to make that the purpose of Romans, then, well, that's the purpose of every book in the Bible. <laughs> and you just kind of flatten the whole thing out, and that's what all the books are. Linsky, in its very nature, truth is prophylactic and arms against error in advance. Beyond that fact, Romans shows no trace of prophylaxis. It's hard to make an argument from the book of Romans that this is apologetic, that he's trying to refute error or that he's trying to just guard against error. Any questions, comments so far? Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, you can find traces of all of these. You can find the theological, you can find the missionary, you can find the apologetic. The, the real question is, which is his primary, what's the primary goal that he has in mind? There is a fourth option. There's one more. <laughs> the fourth option, let, let's, let's do the fourth option. Pastoral. Pastoral is the fourth option. That is to say, Paul's writing to provide encouragement and to be an instrument of reconciliation for the believers in the Roman church. And what do you mean by reconciliation? To remove conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles and to settle any conflict between those two groups. Why would there be conflict? Well, um, there could be some social conflict. Anybody remember what happened to the Jews in Rome before this letter? We talked about it last week. They were kicked out. Anybody know the, remember the emperor? You're close. He was the next one. Starts with a C. Claudius. Claudius. In 49 AD, Claudius kicks all the Jews out. And they stay out until Nero shows up. And in Nero's first couple years, he's actually a nice guy, and he allows the Jews to come back in. And it's believed that social separation would have caused some tension when they were restored back, and they were allowed to come back. The other thing that can cause tension between the Jews and Gentiles is devotion to the Mosaic Law. Jews were very strict on what they would eat. Gentiles, not so much. Did you have a question? Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. There were Jews there, it's just that they weren't living as Jews. That's what they were trying. That's what he's trying to get at. Got, got it. Okay, I, they both raise their hand at the same time. I completely forgot he was asking a question too. Okay, I'm sorry. All right, so Real quick, yes, who was, the, who was the guy who exiled the Jews? Claudius. Claudius. Their devotion to the law. Jews don't eat bacon, but Gentiles we love bacon. <laughs> love bacon. And some of these Jews were likely inclined, as we saw in Romans 14, to still be fastidious in their observance of the Mosaic Law as far as dietary restrictions and 
Sabbath keeping and all those rules. But the Gentiles may not have been so eager. And that may be one of the things that was causing tension between these two groups. The Jews are saying, if you don't follow these rules, you're not truly devout. And the Gentiles are saying, no, we have freedom in Christ and we're not going to do all that. And you kind of see a little bit of that in, in the Corinthian letter when he writes to the Corinthians. But he tells the Corinthians from the other side, look, you, you can eat meat sacrificed to an idol as long as it doesn't offend your brother. Just don't force your brother to eat that stuff. And so there he's coming at it from the other side. But here he's just saying, don't offend your, your weaker brother by trying to force them to obey the law or trying to do something in their presence that would be offensive to them. And in Romans 12, 18, there's a great verse there. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Live at peace with one another. If, it, if you have any control over it, live at peace with each other. Allow these little things to be little things. If they want to have dietary restrictions, fine. If you don't want to have dietary restrictions, fine. Just follow the dictates of your conscience on that. If you're going to be the members, members in the same church, you need to learn how to live as brothers and sisters in Christ and allow people to act according to their conscience. Edmund Hebert said that Paul is seeking to bring about the union of Jew and Gentile in one universal Christian church. His going to Jerusalem with the offering from his Gentile churches for the Judean saints is prompted by his desire to bring these two groups into effective union in the gospel. And remember we looked at last week when he said, please pray that my, my service to the Gentiles would be accepted by the brethren in Jerusalem. It's that same tension that many believe is present in the Roman church. Mm-hmm. Now putting them together and saying you guys are equal is kind of like a thing for the Jews. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially if you if you take the idea that some of these Jews came from Judea, that idea of ethnic Israel and we are God's chosen people could also bring about that tension. And then the Gentiles come in and like, hey, if we've been grafted in, you guys are getting kicked out. All right, and now you really have a, a powder keg of emotion. So we can all see clearly there are some areas where there's going to be some tension between these two. And Paul wants to bring these two groups together. Thomas Schreiner again, one of Paul's primary aims was to unify the church in Rome so that the Jews and Gentiles together would worship God in harmony, understanding that their unified worship fulfilled what the Old Testament scriptures taught. So we have these four views. I'm not going to be dogmatic on any of them. But I will say, I think there's a strong argument you can say that missionary, I think Romans 15 makes a great argument for that. It is one of his reasons for writing. Whether or not you want to say it's the primary one, we'll, we'll leave that to conscience. But I also think that last one, pastoral, is a really good... I lean stronger to the pastoral than I do to missionary, but either one of those are possible. Okay. Uh, number two is in Romans 1, 17. Romans 1, verse 17. This, uh, this one actually has a verse we can go to. 
Uh, Romans 1.17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And the question here is, what does he mean by the righteousness of God? What does he mean by the righteousness of God? Now the word righteousness is that Greek word, dikaiosune. Um, in general, it refers to just being upright being um, morally upright. But it can be used in three, three different ways. Uh, the first is it can refer to the quality, state, or practice of judicial responsibility. That is to say, it talks about an attribute of a person. He is righteous. She is righteous. It describes an attribute of the person. Um, Revelation 19 describes Jesus as being righteous. Romans 3.25. Since I'm right there, I can go there. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. Speaking of the cross. God is righteous. It's an attribute of God. He is righteous. It refers to God's own faithfulness to His own moral standard. That he is faithful to his own moral nature. He never acts contrary to his nature. That's what we mean by God is righteous. It can also refer to behavior as being upright or good. Um, I'll give you some examples. Acts 10, 35. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right. That's that same word is welcome to him. Uh, that's same word is being used to refer to doing what is right. First uh, Peter 2, I'm going to move kind of quickly here. So this is the uh, Bible challenge to keep up. First Peter 2:24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, live to living and obeying and being good in our deeds. Uh, Titus 3.5 talks about deeds done in righteousness. It's meeting God's legal standard in your daily conduct. If you were to be brought before the divine judge, and he were to judge based on your actions, you would be justified. You would be declared righteous because of your behavior. When you keep the law, you are righteous. That's the second sense of this word. Behavior is being upright. Finally, it can refer to divine, best divine bestowal of righteousness. Best text for that is Romans 3. Romans 3, 21 through 23. Romans 3, 21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is apart from the law. It's not the result of conforming to a legal standard. Verse 22, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. This is not a righteousness that's inherent to the person. It's a righteousness that is given to the person. Doesn't, wasn't Abraham encountered unto him for righteousness? So this is all before the law. So mm -hmm. it's obviously not speaking righteousness according to the law. It's something that precedes the law. Yes, yes. 
Abraham is an example of that bestowal. Right, right. That's out of Romans 4. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, that's good. Um, it's not given through obedience. Why? Verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short. This is a righteousness that comes from God. It comes through faith. It's not something that you accomplish or earn on your own. It's given to you. So here's the question. When Paul in Romans 1.17 talks about the righteousness of God, which of these three is he talking about? Now, I want to note that this is generally taught as being righteous. Be the second one, can you see that? The second one is generally taught as being behavior that is brought about by God. Is generally how it's viewed. Which of these three is he, is he referring to? Well, let's talk about the first one. Is it an attribute of God? When he says the righteousness of God, is he referring to an attribute of who God is? The righteousness of God in Romans 1 is talking about the righteousness, the righteous character of God. Well, I don't think that would make sense. Because in Romans 3, when he talks about the righteousness of God, he talks about it as something being given to you. Something that you receive. It's given those to those who believe. So how is God's faithfulness to himself, to his own nature, passed on to you? doesn't work. I also think that comes from a bad translation. We, we have the righteousness of God. I think it's a genitive of source, so I think it would be better the righteousness from God. And I think every time you, you see this phrase, that's the better translation. Paul's not referring to righteousness that's inherent to you or inherent to God. He's referring to righteousness that is given to you. Yeah, something that you receive from God. So, if, in that sense, you could aspire to that. Um, so, I don't think it's the first option. What about the second option? A righteousness produced by God. A behavior that's produced by God. And Paul would certainly affirm that we are supposed to live righteously. If you go to Romans 6, Romans 6, 13, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and from and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So Paul clearly says you are supposed to be living a righteous life. But is that what he's referring to in Romans 1.17 when he speaks of the righteousness of God? I, I don't think so. Because when you look throughout the book of Romans, his argument is that the righteousness that he's focusing on is not the righteousness that comes from your works. It's the righteousness that comes from God that's imputed to you by faith. Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 4, starting in verse 5, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. I think that's what John had mentioned just a minute ago. Philippians 3, More than that I can all things to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them all to be rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, here it is, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. 
Righteousness that comes from works of the law is a righteousness of your own. It's not a righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is not given on the basis of works, it's given on the basis of faith apart from works. And this is actually the historic position of the Roman Catholic Church. I wish I had more time to read all of these, but I'll give them to you quickly. Council of Trent. But those who through sin have fallen away from the received grace of justification may again be justified when, God exciting them, through the sacrament of penance, they by merit of Christ shall have obtained the recovery of grace lost. That is to say, you are declared righteous by God when you actually behave righteously. Council of Trent again. And for, this, and for this cause, unto them who work well unto the end, and hoping in God, life eternal is to be proposed, both as a grace mercifully promised to the sons of God through Jesus Christ, and as a recompense which is to be faithfully rendered to their good works and merits. We must believe, we must needs believe i know that's an error but that's how it's written that to be justified nothing further is wanting but that they be accounted to have by those very works which have been done in god fully satisfy the divine law according to the state of this life that's works righteousness that's works that they claim is produced by god but it fulfills the law one more catholic catechism those also can attain to salvation who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or His church, yet sincerely seek God and, moved by grace, strive by their deeds to do His will as it is known to them through the dictates of conscience. That's pure works righteousness. You don't need the gospel. You don't need to be in the church. You can just strive to be obedient to your conscience. Yes. Right before this, they have a, a statement that the plan of salvation includes Muslims. Is this, is this uh, like a new catechism? I mean, I'm just surprised to see this. Council of Trent was in, uh, Council of Trent was in the 1500s, <laughs> and this is out of uh, a document called Lumen Gentium that's from the 1960s in Vatican II. Yeah, I was going to say, this looks more recent. Yeah. I can't believe that the Catholic Church would allow this loophole. <laughs> yeah. Know, unless it's maybe like for the quote, natives who've never heard, so to speak. Yeah, they're just trying the big tent option. But that's, that's this position. At its, at, its, at its worst, that's this position, at its worst. When you take it all the way to its end. There's a, a milder view of this that just says, Paul here is talking about the fruit of salvation and the righteousness that comes from salvation. Where do they get that from? Remember I showed you dikaiosune, the word for righteousness? There's a verb, uh, dikaiao. It just means to declare righteous. And it refers to God declaring the sinner to be righteous. He's sitting as a judge and he makes a declaration as a judge would. You are righteous. Catholic Church would reject that, but that is what I think Paul is saying here when he talks about the righteousness of God. It is a right, righteous standing given by God. This is a forensic declaration. What do we mean by forensic? What we mean by that is the declaration doesn't change what you actually are in practice. 
That's sanctification. More of a legal, positional Right. It's a legal, positional righteousness. If I were a thief and I were to go to court, and the judge, I know I'm guilty, the judge knows I'm guilty, everybody in the courtroom knows I'm guilty, and I stand before the judge and he says, Frank, you are innocent, and you are now free to go. That is a forensic declaration. It's not meaningless because I actually get to leave the courtroom. But it doesn't change what I actually am. I'm still a thief, right? I, I still stole. And if I don't change my behavior, I'll go out and steal some more, right? But it does change my legal standing. Or I guess you could say, Frank, you are guilty, but this guy over here was willing to take your punishment. Right. Yes. And God does that because Christ took our place and suffered the wrath and took the penalty and he was accounted guilty because or for us or in our place. And God imputes to Christ our guilt and imputes to us his perfect righteousness. He lived a perfect, you know, I, I, here's here's the thought. Why did Jesus live 33 years on the earth? Right. Because he could have just, if it was all about just taking away guilt, he could have showed up on Thursday, died on Friday, rose on Sunday, boom. That puts you right back to where Adam was. You're just innocent now. He needs that 30 years of living to have 30 years of perfect obedience so that he can impute, he can credit that to you and give you credit for that perfect life. That's what righteousness is. It's obedience. It's the one thing we don't have. And at the cross, he takes our guilt. We get his righteousness. That's the righteousness of God that he's talking about. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Right. That's what he's talking about. And that's why this verse, Romans 1.17, was the verse that just knocked Martin Luther on the floor. Because he realized that what the Catholic Church was teaching was just flat out wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. I guess you could say that for all of us, in some sense, once we saw this, this substitution, this I can't do anything, he did it, we're saved. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. Like that, that, that verse should be the John 3.16 that we all put a quote of, right? Yeah. It's, it's a great summary verse of the gospel. All right, so I think that's probably the best answer. That might talk about the results of salvation, but I don't think that's what he's talking about here, and I don't think that's even close. Aren't there Old Testament passages that talk about God's righteousness coming down? I would, be, I would have to look them up. Yes, I would have to look them up too, yeah. It could be. I, 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 don't, I don't know off the top of my head. That's a good question. All right, we need to keep moving. I have 10 minutes, and we're about to go into Romans 5. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to do this, but we'll, we'll, we'll give it a good, good old-fashioned try. Um, Romans 5, the challenges here in chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, I'm going to be forthright with you here. Romans 5 is one of the most debated passages in all of Scripture. This is one of those 
The only thing harder than this one is Romans 7, and we just don't have time. <laughs> okay? So, Paul asserts four basic truths in this verse. One, sin entered the world through one man. He's not saying sin was created by one man, or it came into existence by Adam. He's just saying it entered into humanity through one man. Second truth, sin brought death. Because of sin, you die. Third truth, death spread to all men. Fourth truth, death spreads to all men because all men sinned. All men sinned. And that is where our interpretive challenge is. What does he mean by all sinned? In what way have all sinned? What is he talking about here? Well, there's one one view that says all sinned in the sense of Adam was a bad example. You sin because you're following after Adam. And instead of following Christ, you choose to follow Adam. This is a little flawed. Scripture clearly says that you sin because you have a nature for sin. You have a desire for sin. Can anyone give me some verses on that? Ephesians 2, good. I don't know the passage, but it's, um, there are, there are none righteous, no, not even one. Romans 3, mm-hmm. 10 and following, good. Yeah, so Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Romans 3, uh, 10 and following, clearly says you sin because of your sinful nature. This teaching of a bad example came from a guy known as Pelagius. Pelagius said that God if God is going to demand that you be righteous, that God will give you the ability to be righteous on your own. And therefore, you have a choice. You can follow the example of Adam, or you can follow the example of Christ. What does that do to the work of Christ? Yeah, if it's just a matter of choosing to follow the example, why did Jesus die on the cross? Yeah, I guess we're all supposed to get crucified. I don't <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it's like, if it's just an example, then why do we need all this? We can just have the four Gospels and keep on going. It invalidates the Gospel. Okay, well then there's another view, an inherited sin nature. It's talking about original sin. Because of Adam, you have a sinful bent, and you sin because you have a sinful nature that you receive from Adam. Because of Adam, all are conceived in sin. And That's true, isn't it? It's true. Yeah, that is true. We have original sin, and this is the position of many of the Reformers. I don't think that's all he's talking about here, though. This is talking about a historic event. All sinned. This is talking about a historic event. The, the Greek grammar here says that this is an event that happened in the past. You sinned. It's not you will sin. There's another argument, but I'm going to save that for later, so just file that one for now. The third view. Sin in and with Adam. There's another name for this view. It's called the seminal view. It says that all man, all men were present in the garden with Adam in his loins. Because Adam is the father of humanity, 
And so in some sense, some strange sense, you were present with Adam when he sinned. And thereby you are now guilty because you were with Adam in the garden when he sinned. And therefore you now will die because of the sin. This is a, this is a view that's pretty common, actually. Augustine held this view. It rejects the idea that Adam was merely a bad example. It goes further than saying you merely inherited a sin nature. And it makes the person actually guilty of the sin. If all you did was inherit a sin, sinful nature, some people would say you can't be guilty. You didn't actually do anything. How are you guilty? This makes the individual guilty on the basis of their lineage from Adam, and that in some sense they were complicit in the sin of Adam. And so it answers the question, how can I be accounted as being guilty? I feel like that's like kind of flawed, though, because that's almost like saying if a mom was pregnant and her baby was like in the womb, and then she committed a crime, but the baby's also guilty of theft, like if she stole something. Yeah, I don't know that I agree with every part of this, mm-hmm. but we'll, we'll see. Um, yes. Well, kind of juxtaposes. Hebrews speaks of giving tithes to Melchizedek uh-huh. through Abraham, but it says that because uh, the tribe of Levi came through, they were still in his loins. It was like even they gave tithes. Yeah, and that's that's Hebrews seven. That's the argument that's used for this passage. We don't have time to go through that passage, but I'll give you an argument as to why I don't think that works. Okay, and it's from Romans 5. But if this is true, that you are in the loins of Adam, and that you are guilty because you were in his loins, and that you were somehow, in some spiritual sense, present with Adam in the garden, we have a little bit of a problem. Jump down to Romans 5, verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, that would be the sin of Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Do you see the comparison he just made? In the same way that Adam's guilt comes to you, life comes to you through Christ. So if we take the seminal view and we apply it to verse 18, we have to say that in some sense, you were in Christ when he died on the cross and you suffered with him. Yeah, but that's the that's where this falls apart. When you get further down in Romans 5, that view kind of falls apart on you because it doesn't work. Verse 19, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. The similar view would say you were made a sinner because you were in his loins. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Were you in the loins of Christ when he was being obedient? I don't think I would make that argument. You're united to him, but that's not to say that you're in his loins. That's that, Yeah, you're, you are correct. You are united to him, but that's united after your conversion. Did you participate in the righteousness of Christ in the sense of being actively involved? Well, you can't be in the loins of uh, a sinner because Christ is perfect, so you can't be there. Yeah. And no one ever explains how it is that you're in his loins. Medically, it doesn't work. It doesn't work spiritually. No one ever explains that. It's just kind of asserted. Isn't Romans 1.18 also a really good 
example for like debunking it as well because it's kind of exclusive. It's a through one man only. It's not like necessarily placing like the origin of sin right. on that. It's saying through one man only. Through one man sin entered the world. You became guilty through one guy. Mm-hmm. That brings us to the, yes. I was just going to say this with sin in and with Adam, this whole idea of being in Adam's loins and all that. I mean, physiologically, you know, if you're you're taking this quote spiritual truth and translating it into a physical physical realm that wouldn't work with Adam right I would see it working with Eve yeah that's where the life is not in the male it's in the female yeah so wouldn't Eve if that was to work that idea <laughs> wouldn't Eve have to have been the one who was responsible for everything? Yeah, that's uh, what, th- that is another can of worms, and that's gonna that's gonna take us down a whole other route. You're exactly right. Let me let me get let me get to the fourth view because it's already ten o'clock, and I do want you to have this. The fourth view: Adam is a representative head. Adam as a representative head, aka federal headship. This view does does have some similarities to the seminal view. In both individuals are credited with sin because of their connection to Adam. In both, Adam's guilt becomes our guilt. In both view, Adam uh, passes on to his progeny a sinful nature. But in this view, you're not guilty because you were in Adam's loins. You are guilty and condemned because Adam acted as your representative head, and his guilt is imputed to you. He is the father of the human race, and he acted on behalf of the entire human family. And one of the examples they give for this is Achan in the book of Joshua. Achan goes in, steals the forbidden treasure. He comes out with the treasure. He hides it in his tent. And when they find out who did it, what do they do? They stone him, his family, his livestock, everybody. Adam is the father of the human race. And he acted on behalf of the entire human race. So Adam's sin against God is thus imputed or incredited to you. Notice verse 14 of Romans 5. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Adam is a type of Christ. They did not sin as Adam sinned. The people who sinned before Moses didn't have the law. Adam had a very clear law, didn't he? Don't eat from that tree. You did not receive the righteousness of Christ because you are in his loins. And you didn't receive the guilt of Adam because you were in his loins either. No, it's okay. <laughs> that was in my notes. That wasn't for you. <laughs> no. Okay, good. Okay. His righteousness is credited or imputed. Christ acted on your behalf as a vicarious substitute. He took your place. He acted in your stead. And His atoning death was for your sin. Uh, His atoning death was for sin, and that was uh, imputed to Him. The guilt was credited to Him, even though He didn't do it. In the same way, you are guilty. You are guilty. You are guilty of a sin that you did not commit. It was credited to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 21, For since by a man came death, 
by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Death is the consequence of sin. In Adam, everyone dies. Yeah. There is a common objection to this. Uh, there's one in Deuteronomy 24, and there's one in Ezekiel. I just want to go to the one in Ezekiel and give it to you. Ezekiel 18.20. I had to write... write oh, I'm in 17. <laughs> the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be found in himself. And people say, well, there you go. It can't be federal headship because the righteous will bear their righteousness, and the wicked will bear their wickedness. And they also there's a passage, Deuteronomy 24, 16, says something very similar. The problem is that's mixing categories here. These passages are talking about punishment for sins that you have committed. And it's saying if I, if I were to have children and I go out and commit a sin, God's not going to punish my physical children for the acts that I committed. It says nothing about whether or not the guilt of Adam is imputed. Uh, biblical doctrine... There is no real connection between the doctrine of original sin and these passages, which addresses the guilt and punishment for personal sin. And I would note, I cannot find a single verse in the Bible that says you were punished as a result of what Adam did. Guilt is imputed to you through original sin, but you are punished for your sin. It's an important distinction, right? So, out of these four, I think Adam as a representative head is the correct view. Because none of us certainly <laughs> right. If I was Adam in the garden, I probably would have eaten from the tree too. No, we can't blame. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Let me pray real quick, and we will be done. Father, we thank you for the book of Romans. I thank you for everyone that's here this morning. Uh, we, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to talk about these important issues and to learn uh, really some deep theology and um, some things that aren't always easy to understand, but always a blessing when we do understand them. And so we thank you so much. We ask that you'd be with us this morning as we worship, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.